Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The Money the Cafe. Money Cafe. Uh, g'day, James. Uh, we are not in the cafe today for reasons beyond our control, And uh, but I can assure you I've got a cup of coffee in front of me. I don't know about you. Uh, I'm, I'm going sticking with the water this morning, Alan. Oh, I see. Very, very abstemious <laughs> of you. Um, anyway, um, there's plenty to talk about, so let's get stuck into it. Um, first thing I want to talk about is Lark Distilling and yeah. Jeff Bainbridge, who quit yesterday uh, because of a six-year-old video of him smoking ice, which he says has been the uh, subject of uh, extortion for six years. Heavens above. Um so do you know much more than that about it? I mean, has he, has he been paying these extortionists over for six years? Yeah, well, apparently he's paid them 12 grand or something according to uh, what he's told the age and the SMH. Um, he, it, it appears he sort of hoped that would be the end of it and then it wasn't. Uh, he bought in a, a, a group in London, a sort of risk control or risk assessment group to, to help him out. Um, and from what he says, he's taken the approach of ignoring the threats, and and it's uh, blown up in the last couple of days. Yeah, so so presumably they gave the video to Sherry Markson at the Australian um, because he stopped paying them. Is that is that what happened? Well, presumably, or or, or yeah, yeah, or, or wouldn't pay them in uh, this latest round. So, um, and obviously, the, she's gone to him and the company and. Um, here we are. We're, um, Jeff's out, and uh, Lark's um, Lark's down twenty one point five percent yesterday. Heavens above. Well, I mean, yeah. Look, uh, I, I guess you might say, you know, what what's really changed in the business? You know, yes, yes, the CEO's gone, but the whiskey's still there, and that's what matters. And you know, there's what a, a, a pile of whiskey over two million liters that. Lark says will be worth four hundred and thirty million bucks um, at the end of this financial year. The company's now worth two hundred and sixty two seventy. So there's a fair valuation gap. I mean, you know, it's a discount to NTA, net tangible assets. So yeah, I reckon that things are screaming buy now. <laughs> I guess the I guess the question you have though is, will there be a bit of a sort of I call it a reverse halo effect where yeah I was going to ask you what you meant by that that was in, that was in your piece in the in Chanaclear. you called well, that well what do you mean by that instead of sort of um, you know in trading at a premium uh, because everyone loves the CEO does the stock trade at a discount now because everyone's uh, sort of a bit you know perplexed about what's happened to the CEO Um you know, is there a bit of a reputational drag there, I guess, uh, while Lark sort of finds a new boss and sorts itself out? So I think there probably will be, actually. Um, but it remains to be seen. Can I just say, I reckon he didn't need to resign. I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm more tolerant than others, but, geez. So so six years ago, he, he got drunk and was filmed smoking ice. I presume he hasn't touched it since and he's been at blackmail for six years. Heavens. I mean, why did he have to resign? I think it's a pretty tough corner to fight your way out of. Um, and, and you know, I, I take your point, but, but I think being a CEO is about judgment, isn't it, Alan? 
Um, and, and yes, this was before his luck days, but six years ago isn't that long ago. And, and, and you know, Jeff's admitted his judgment was poor in this situation. Do, do you know whether the board told him to go or he he uh, he decided him of his own accord? Uh, I don't, but uh, I think he offered his resignation as, and it was accepted without debate was the way it was put in one report. I see. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. He was... Uh, Just when you think you've seen it all, Alan. <laughs> I know. It's, uh, I know. I, I interviewed him not long ago. I thought he was great. I thought he was a very impressive person. Well, yes, and, and that's, um, that's one of the things that's... You know, you speak to investors yesterday and one said to me, you know, this guy was one of the smartest people we've ever met. Um, and so that's probably going to hang on the company too. It has lost its talisman and it's, you know, the storyteller and the guy who was able to um, really push this thing forward. So that, that does come with a cost. That, that is hard to replace. So let's talk about the earnings season. We're about, I think we're just a bit more than a third of the way through it and the numbers... Uh, something like forty six percent have uh, beat uh, beaten expectations. Um, not that many have missed. Yep. So the the statistics are one thing. What's your impression so far overall? Oh, I think it's passable. Um, I, I, I think you know forty six percent have beat, which is good. But the usual average is about fifty five percent. So we, we are down on that. Um, you know, companies are very good at under promising and over delivering so you know don't take the beat ratio on face value i think there's been a number of what i'd sort of call uh less worse results where between the start of january and and you know early feb where we saw the market correct a lot of stuff was sold off um people are seeing the results and going oh well look it's not as bad as we thought it was going to be or or um, it's passable, so you know that that's that's worth buying. So I think we've seen these interesting relief rallies in a lot of stocks. You know, CSL was up eight percent. I think people were worried about the growth prospects there. Seen some of these tech groups like ProMedicus and even Temple and Webster have big jumps on results days after results that you know again was just not not better than expected, but perhaps less worse than expected. So, but I. Uh, it, it's fascinating. I still don't have an idea of what normal, what a normal world looks like for a lot of companies. Um, obviously, revenue has been hit by Omicron in a lot of situations or, or lockdowns last year. And then we've got this new sort of wave of inflation coming through, which in some cases, a lot of cases, is being offset by price rises. But it just makes you... Think you know what's the what's the normalised level of cost in this business? What's the normalised picture of revenue? And I, I, I'm I'm not sure yet. You know the, the the number of companies saying supply chain disruptions and shipping problems and freight costs are, are going to continue well into you know towards the middle of the year is you know it, that that's almost unanimous. And so. I think we're still six to nine months away from knowing how these businesses actually w w trade in, in, you know, what they normally look like. And what about BHP? Um, it was a good result. How much of that was due to their own efforts and how much to, you know, the iron ore market in China? Oh, I think um, the high, high prices obviously help, but what, what, you've, what you're seeing at 
BHP is is a pretty impressive sort of commitment to operational performance. Um, Mike Henry's a you know he's quite laser like on making sure the joint keeps costs down, particularly, and so they're clearly the lowest cost uh, iron ore producer in the world. And Henry seems intent on you know albeit with inflation to fight uh, on continuing to. To, to push costs down or at least hold them if possible. So they're, they're, they're very well run at the moment. Their, their operational performance compared to, um, particularly compared to Rio, is excellent. So, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're controlling what they can control. Well, Rio's had a shocking 12 months, haven't they? I mean, crikey, first it was uh, the uh, Jurgen Gorge uh, problem and then then their, uh, the Broderick report into their sexism. Goodness yeah. me. I mean, and and I, I think you know that's a, Rio's a good example that the, the mine plan in the Pilbara, which is sort of crucial to the way the you know the grade of ore that you get out of the mine and and the revenue and the profit you you earn from that ore, their mine plan is went off course a couple of years ago and is still not fixed. And and when you've got these cultural heritage issues and these. Um, cultural behaviour issues, it just makes it so much harder to get back on track. So the high iron ore price has sort of covered a lot of issues, but it won't forever. Yes, something else you've been writing about is Crown. Um, obviously, they've accepted this offer from uh, Blackstone, $8.9 uh, billion. Um, I, I don't know about you. You will find out the results today, I guess, but... Um, I reckon that sounds like a lot, $8.9 billion. Crikey, everything needs to go right for Crown and uh, it's hard to imagine it will. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking of it, Alan. Like, um, yeah, it, it's, I'm torn. I, I think in two years, um, in two years' time or even, yeah, two years' time, the Crown will still be a hard You'll still be in a fair bit of pain. You'll have this special manager in running the Melbourne Casino alongside Blackstone. You'll probably have some sort of special manager running Perth alongside Blackstone. But if you fast forward, you know, a few years after that, we're all forgotten about COVID, tourism's back up and running. Uh, maybe that's when you'll start to see um, the, the, this shine through. But I think it is a pretty fair deal in that respect. Blackstone's going to have to work pretty hard to extract value out of it, and Crown shareholders, uh, uh, you know, have got a good price now um, to for a reduction in uncertainty. So I think it's a good balance, if that makes but, sense. Uh, yeah, uh, just on a um, later matter, I um, I read a piece the other day. I think it was in the Financial Times that Blackstone's salaries are the highest in the world of anybody. I mean, the yeah, pro- right. Private equity firms like Blackstone are now currently paying more than the banks, than the investment banks pay, and Blackstone pays the most, something yeah. like $2 million okay. on average or something ridiculous. Yeah. Well, right. look, I mean, um, these are very big deals with very big price tags. You know, the, the other thing that, that Blackstone's going to do is split the property assets from the um, operational assets. Uh, that that's I think that's inevitable, and so they'll find ways of engineering some good returns here. I think. 
Yeah, well, they obviously think so. They want to keep their their salaries. And actually, I just looked it up as I'm talking to you. It's three million per right. uh, per employee. Almost what um almost what you get paid per episode for the Money Cafe. Uh, well, that'll be in our dreams, James. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, now, uh, markets have been volatile, uh, obviously, but what's interesting is that nobody seems to know uh, whether Putin has actually pulled troops back from the <laughs> from the Ukraine border. I mean, he kind of he showed some video of uh, tanks being loaded on the back of trucks the other day, and I think is it Anthony Blinken or somebody in America's come out and said, "Oh no, no, we don't believe that. Uh, we don't think that's happening." So, what the hell's going on? Oh, your guess is as good as mine, and, and I think, um, as you say, the market's guess is is fascinating. Like we have seen a bit of, uh, you know, trading on headlines, particularly in America, and particularly in commodities like oil. It seems yeah. to be on a bit of a hair trigger at the moment, yeah. um, and <laughs> and it is fascinating that in a world of you know technologies and satellites, um, yeah, I would have thought they, I, I would have thought they'd be watching. You know the flies on their noses well, <laughs> uh, by satellite, let alone you know not knowing what the hell's going on. They should know exactly what the uh, the Russians are doing on the border. Well, well, you get the sense they might be doing that, and, and that's why they they're not so sure old Vlad is uh, holding to his word. So yes, um, it, it, it's a pretty sort of fascinating situation, and and you know there's been a lot written on this in the last little while, but. If there was an invasion and then sanctions came, like there's a lot of dominoes to fall throughout the global economy that just be fascinating to see how they play out. I mean, you know, you don't wish for an invasion or, or war or anything like that, but um, gosh, it's it'll be such another wrinkle for the world. I mean, some of the oil, the energy prices that we're seeing flow through, you know, you wonder if this is a sort of, signal of what's to come or, or um, how we need to think about it. It's quite amazing. I've been writing in your Eureka report from the beginning that there's no way that Putin and Russia will invade Ukraine. It's just madness. I mean, mm. surely even he is not that stupid to invade Ukraine. I mean, I mean maybe they'll try to annex Donbass, the, uh, you know, the area in the, in the east, but but even that, I mean, crikey, the 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 disruption. The, I mean, imagine getting stuck. I mean, what a disaster America's invasion of Iraq was, two thousand and three. Um, you know, I, I mean, it just. But anyway, presumably, me writing it that they won't do it is exactly why they will do it, and I'll look stupid as usual. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I just can't imagine it. And I think that what he's trying to do is um, build up bargaining power. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it it doesn't there doesn't seem to be a lot for him to gain uh, with with an invasion, but yeah, you know, yeah, it, it, it's he it doesn't seem he doesn't necessarily seem guided by uh, uh, rationality all the time. So um, yeah, and you know, he, he's obviously a person who does does what he wants and away he goes. Yeah, well, anyway, I've been advising Eureka subscribers to. Um, to treat any correction on the basis of a possible invasion as a buying opportunity. That's what I mean. I still think that's the case. Fair enough. Um, let's get into questions, shall we? Yeah, great. Do you want to read the first one from Simon? Uh, I do. Uh, Simon writes, I'm keen to set up an ethical portfolio with future technology for my infant son. 
but I'm finding it difficult to actually find true ESG companies within the battery mineral sector on the ASX. No true zero carbon companies, for instance. Are you aware of any that truly fit the criteria? If so, do you see them as long-term performers? Uh, well, the one that springs to mind to me is Vulcan Energy, which has uh, both lithium and um, geothermal energy in Germany. So they've got this they've got this deposit of lithium that's also attached to a geothermal energy thing that that the you know the the, uh, the water is hot or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, so they they're able to they're going to be able to uh, produce lithium and to process it using the geothermal energy so they'll be truly uh, zero carbon zero carbon lithium and they, they, they've got the same thing in Italy they say now this yeah. is in Germany it's not too far from the um, the car factories of Germany right uh, and they're also going to be able to sell the geothermal energy separately to heat homes in um, uh, around where they are <laughs> so so look I, I mean that, that just springs to mind I think that is a long-term um, proposition. I, I must say, I, I wonder whether Simon's uh, well advised to be looking at trying to look for different separate companies like this, and you might be better off just going into a um, an ethical fund uh, and let someone else do the work for you. Yeah, I, I guess the other point that we are still a little way away from true zero carbon companies. I mean, you know, Andrew Forrest is trying to get there with Fortescue and Fortescue Future Industries, but the technology is not settled. So I think anything that you find in that area, including Vulcan, is going to be fairly speculative for a fair while. So uh, to, to see them as sort of safe long-term performers for his uh, his new baby boy, uh, I don't know about that. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I think mean, you want to be pretty realistic about, you know, true, uh, true zero carbon companies are few and far between around the world. Exactly, that's right. Um, yeah, that's right. Okay, Ben says, thank you for a truly engaging and enjoyable podcast. You're welcome, Ben. My wife and I have both recently increased our incomes and for the first time buying property in Melbourne is a realistic proposition. If the bank's recent forecasts are accurate, then 2023-24, when we should have a deposit saved, will be a decent time to buy. I'm hoping to maximise our savings with short-term investing in stocks and ETFs. There are many options with excellent track records of growth or high yields, including the likes of Regal Investment Fund, Macquarie, First Trust, First Trust High Yield Opportunities, Microsoft, Invesco, QQ, yeah, the mixed bag there. Anyway, assuming we keep a reasonably diversified portfolio of stocks and ETFs with consistent performances over the last five years, am I making an error of logic in thinking this is not too risky a strategy? Um, the next question is along similar lines, I yeah. think. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Uh, we probably should just read this question out too. You want to do that and we'll, we'll answer both of them together. Yeah, David says, great show, keep up the good work. I've recently sold an investment property which will be settling in a few weeks. He's going to have a significant tax bill from the gains, but he doesn't need to submit the tax return and pay the bill for about 12 months. Any general advice on what to do then? Obviously, the term deposits paying 0.3%, not a great option. He wouldn't even get out of bed for 0.3%, which is fair enough. So I, I guess David and um, Ben are asking similar things about what to parking do money in the market. Yeah, um, for, a, for a year or, or two. Yeah, yeah. Or, or five. So, uh, 
yeah, the logic of it appeals, but w- what about the practicalities? Alan? Well, the thing is that the, the share market is volatile. You know, um, a, a lot of people are saying that you know the share market, particularly in America, is in a bubble uh, and is due for a crash. Now, I, I happen not to agree with that. Uh, that there's not there's not going to be a crash, but I but I do think that there's not going to be uh, very good returns over the next few years because prices are high. This is not a time to be expecting um, good overall returns. Um, you know, for a while, there are two ways that the market corrects. One is to have a crash and the other is to do nothing for 10 years or two years or five years or, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, I reckon probably we're in for the second of those. Um, so the question is whether it's worth the risk, whether, whether the return, the potential return you're likely to get over the next short time, like one to two years, is worth the risk of a potential loss of 30%. And my view would be it's not. It's just simply not. I mean, short-term investing in the stock market is for mugs, I reckon. You just wouldn't do it, um, if you, particularly if you absolutely need the money. In the, at the end of that one or two years, you, you know, you're relying on it for a house deposit or, or, um, or to pay tax. I mean, crikey, the last thing, you'd, in my view, the last thing you would do is invest a future tax bill in the stock market. Heavens above. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think I think your point about when you're going to need the money is the important thing. I can see Ben's point that he's talking about. Um, well, he's only talking about twenty three, twenty four. Um, yeah, so he's, so he's only two years away, isn't he? It's it's not. One to two I, I years. I think if you if your time frame is less than five years, and you know you're going to need that money at some point. For example, you know, he might find the perfect house within 18 months rather than two years. Where does that leave him? Um, and the same for David. I, I agree with you, you know. You, you're really hoping you get your timing very, very, very spot on. But um, And you're assuming that the returns we've seen over the last couple of years particularly, which have been abnormal because of the stimulus that's been pumped into the global economy, you're assuming that those are going to continue. So I think you need to lower your sights and figure out, yeah, it's, it's going to, you know, 0.3% is awfully small, but as as Alan says, it's completely risk-free. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I mean, you just you could find yourself, um, you know, we had, the market fell uh, 30, 30 something percent last in, in um, February, March 2020. That was completely unexpected out of the yeah. blue. Yeah, uh, that sort of thing. That sort of thing is what happens to share markets. So yeah, this is not personal advice; it's general advice only, Ben and David. But honestly, be careful. Yeah. Um, Rose says, "I'm 33 and finally getting around to checking it on my super." So unsurprisingly, I found it was invested in a balanced growth fund. So I thought, while I'm still young-ish, I'd move it all into a high-growth Australian and the international shares fund. And now I've done it. I worry I've picked a bad time to go high risk with the threat of inflation creating volatility should I have left my super balanced. Uh, also, if you have time, is the death cover worth it? Okay, first question. Uh, okay, J- uh, James, what do you reckon? Um, I think you need to think about what high growth means in the in the super fund context. You know, they're not loading you up with crypto and uh, tiny mining companies and, and betting on asteroid mining or something like that. It, it it's pretty it's the safe end of high growth, and there'll still be um, 
you know, that, that you'll still have your uh, protection in terms of there'll be, there won't be as much cash, but there still will be some cash is what I'm trying to say. Um, so I, I, I don't think uh, Rose needs to be overly worried about that part of the, the equation. I, I think her instinct is right. She's young. That's the time to be in high growth. Yeah, that's right. She's got 30 years. Uh, yeah. This is, uh, you know, you should, people in their 30s should be in high growth all the time. No doubt about it. Um, it uh, is, you know, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it may be, you'll find, Rose, uh, that it was a bad time to switch um, because the market is at a high. And so, you know, you might find that the market is down uh, 10% this time next year. It's possible. I'm not. I don't know. But I mean, that's that's a possibility. Um, and so, in a high growth portfolio, you do slightly worse uh, than in a balanced portfolio. As James says, it's not that much difference. It's a bit of difference, but not that much between them. Um, but really, uh, people who are 33 should be in high growth all the time, in my view. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What about death cover? Oh, I, I really don't know on this. Uh, Alan, I think it's improved a lot. Um, that's my sense. Uh, but, I, 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 yeah, it, it's very – I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, my view on death cover is, um, uh, is there somebody who needs the money if you die? Like, yeah, okay. That's really it. Is the, uh, Are you with somebody that if you die, they need money? Because that's that's the question. If, if you're not, if, for example, if you're single, you don't need death cover at all. If you're married to somebody who's got a perfectly good income, uh, they're okay. If you die, obviously they'll be unhappy, but um, they won't be financially disadvantaged, then you don't need death cover, you know. I, I mean, uh, my view, I've got, I've got death cover because I've got some people who rely on me. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, that's really all you need death cover for, in my view. Um, that's a good way of thinking of it. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that is a good, simple test. That's a good, simple test. Uh, um, it's your turn, right? Yeah, it is. Go. Luke Magellan, what does it mean for investors in their funds, not just investors in the company? Good question. Go on, you answer it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, I, I think it means, I, I think it means that. The the funds uh, are going to be tweaked under the new. Um, what do you Chief mean tweaked? Chris McKay. He's, he sort of came out last Friday and said, "Look, everything looks pretty good to me. No orange or red flags." But I think it's inevitable that um, a new manager with fresh eyes will come in and make some tweaks to the global fund, for example. Um, so yeah, this is a, a period. This will be a period of change, I think, at Magellan. Um, obviously, there'll be a new CEO. There's a new chairman. Um, Hamish Douglas will be uh, off the scene for an indefinite amount of time. So I would expect that over time we'll see some probably subtle tweaks to the the holdings in that growth fund. Not major, but subtle. The main reason their performance suffered is because they got big, isn't it? Yeah, they made a few bad calls though, um, particularly Chinese tech stocks last year, Alibaba being the main one there, uh, Tencent to an extent as well. So 
that's the sort of thing I'd look at. Like, what will McKay's, Chris McKay's attitude to uh, that sort of risk be? He, he might have a different view on China than Hamish Douglas, and so you'll see those sort of tweaks. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's what you need to watch out for. Luke says, here's a question prompted by being a shareholder in Virtus Health who have had private equity takeover offers. What does it mean for a shareholder? Do your shares get purchased and it's all over? You get your cash and your investment in them is done or do the new owners just run the show and they are still listed? Uh, well, Luke, the two offers for Virtus are for 100% of the business. One's at so far at $7.10, one's at $7.60. Um, I can't remember. Is it uh, TPG, the last one? Uh, uh, it's another – it's a different um, three-lettered uh, oh, private okay. equity firm from overseas, yeah. Anyway, so it doesn't matter. The, from they're, they're, they're offering 100%. I think that someone will buy 100%. Um, there's actually, uh, obviously a slow-motion auction taking place. Um, uh, I think they are – I think they're, um, you know, uh, what's the word, the – you know, the – the type of offer is a, um, uh, a vote, seventy-five percent vote, as scheme opposed to of arrangement. Yep. Scheme of arrangement. That's the, the term I was hunting for. This, I think, their scheme of arrangements. In which case, uh, they need a seventy-five percent vote of shareholders. In which case, they get, and in that case, they get a hundred percent. If it's just a straight-out offer, they need ninety percent to mop up the rest. Um, uh, in which case, you get your cash. And your investment in them is done, as you put it, Luke. Yeah. And uh, that's it. Sometimes they might uh, keep it listed um, by only kind of buying half of it, or sixty percent, or something. Uh, sometimes fifty-one percent, so they control it, but they want to keep it listed. Uh, but but that's not the case with Virtus Health. Sam from Hong Kong. Uh, has a tricky question. I love the show, so please keep the fantastic conversations and insights coming. I have a question about active ETF slash lick company issued options, listed investment company issued options. As I write this, the ticker PIC has a share price of 136, an option of uh, one cent, and an exercise price in September 2022 of $1.35. To me, this seems like an easy leverage position, i.e. pay one cent now, Pay one thirty-five in the future to hopefully profit from a rising market over the next six months. My question is: Would there be anything that caps or puts pressure on the ETF's NAV or prevents the share price from eclipsing the options price? <laughs> uh, I reckon this is just such a classic of what's good about options. You know, you're, you're paying a cent to buy this thing. This is Perpetual Equity Investment Company um, PIC. And, uh, you know, you, you pay a cent now, you get to buy it in six months' time at $1.35. Um, no downside, it seems to me. Crikey. I mean, if it goes down to a dollar over the next six months for some reason, because the market craps itself, um, you're only out, you're only down one cent. Your, your options lapse and you've lost the cent. Um, yeah. But if, they, if the price goes up to $1.50, you get them for $1.35. I think it's great. <laughs> um, I mean, the question that he says, would there be anything that caps or puts pressure on the ETF's net asset value or prevents the share price from eclipsing the option exercise price? The answer, of course, is a, is a market uh, correction. Yes. 
you know, if the market goes down or else, you know, maybe Perpetual itself has some sort of crisis, but that doesn't seem likely. They're a pretty solid business. They'll be all right. So if the market uh, has a correction, falls 20% over the next six months, then, uh, you know, you've lost a cent per share. Am I, am I missing something, James? Um, you're not, but, but, but I guess what I would say is uh, <laughs> to Sam is that his last point there, is there anything that caps or puts pressure on the ETF's NAV or prevents the share price from eclipsing the auction price? Uh, the answer is definitely yes, um, and so you are punting. This is a punt, um, and you've just got to, you know, <laughs> you've just got to make sure you're happy with the punt. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it might be, yeah, it might be reasonable in this case. There'll be other cases when it's not. So I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, you, you get into options, you, you are you are speculating and you've got to be prepared that sometimes you'll get it right and sometimes you get it wrong. Yeah, but I was just saying that the good thing about options is you're not betting too much. The, no, leverage, is, the leverage is enormous. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll bet a bit and possibly win a lot. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, you know, the price will probably end up being a dollar thirty-six, and you'll make one cent. <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's 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 a bit of a fraud area, and um, yeah, not for the faint-hearted, I would have said. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, well, that's great, James. Thanks very much. Good to talk to you again, and uh, we'll see you in the cafe in two weeks' time. Yes. Um, right. And thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of The Money Cafe. Stephen Main will join me next week in the cafe and uh, send, send in your questions for him or me, and we'll get to them uh, next week. Send them questions to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. So until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, the Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. Thanks, James. See you soon. <laughs>